First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In chapter 5, Paul has provided a series of admonitions in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when Jesus comes, he will be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we read the exhortations, we're struck by the fact that the young church faced so many problems. Some Christians were living carelessly. Some Christians weren't respecting church leaders. Others were abusing the time of corporate worship. There was a need for holiness and there was a need for love and there was a need for honesty and there was a need for harmony. And so Paul addresses these important issues. And remember, Paul has included an admonition to be watchful. In verses 1 through 11. And Paul has told us to be respectful of leaders in verses 12 and 13. And now there is a plea to be mindful of one another in verses 14 and 15. And to be thankful for one another in verses 16 through 18. The church is a bride. The church is a body. But the church also, in a very real sense, is a family. And just like in real life, you have to work hard for there to be peace in the family. You have to work hard for there to be peace in the church. And so in chapter 5, Paul begins with instructions for family leadership. He will continue with, with family partnership. And he will make his way as we continue into this chapter into those issues of family worship. And so he says, be mindful of one another in verses 14 and 15. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Paul gives a series of reminders Admonish or warn the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, refuse to retaliate. And right from the start in verse 14, when Paul says, now we exhort you, brethren. The instructions or the exhortation isn't limited to leaders or elders, but it includes everyone in the church, everyone who can be called brethren. And he begins with warning those who are unruly. Now, it's interesting. Warn is the very same word that's translated admonish in verse 12, where it says, 
And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish. And remember what we have already looked at that particular word. It's the word nuthatekio. And again, we've looked at it at great length before, but I want to remind you the ancient word is from two words that are brought together in the Greek language. Nous, which is mind, and theme, which means to place or to put. And so when you put these two words together, it literally meant to place in a person's mind. And it's so easy to place things in a person's mind. I was doing my radio program and I was reminding them that our mind becomes captive by that which we're listening to. A caller said, you can't do that. I said, watch. Uh, Now, right now, I want you to refuse to think about pink elephants. Go. I go, what are you thinking about? He goes, pink elephants. I go, that's exactly right. We place things in our mind. And so the term warn, in this particular context, it means to cautiously confront with a view that you might be wrong. But it carried with it the idea of calling a person to account for his or her behavior. It's been my experience as a pastor for many, many years that Christians are very much willing to support one another and comfort one another. But there is something about confrontation that many people are reluctant to participate in. Maybe you've said or you've heard someone say to you, I don't like confrontation. But guess what? In order to live as a family, sometimes there are things that you have to talk about and that you have to confront. And the word translated unruly is going to be a word that many of you are familiar with. You're going to even hear something of a modern English language word from it. The word unruly is attack toss, attack toss. And you're going, ooh, that sounds like attack. Well, again, it's a descriptor or an adjective. In the ancient world of, of both Greece and Rome, The word tasso meant to draw up in order or to arrange in order. And so when it has the negative prefix like it does here with A, it means disorder. It can sometimes mean undisciplined. And it's actually translated that way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, where it says, Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. Same word. And so one Bible teacher notes that the word was used in the context of the military. In the ancient world, it was often used of a soldier who would step out of rank. And you've got to understand something in the in the world of ancient warfare soldiers kept the line. They kept the order, if you will. And when one soldier stepped out of line, it would often create a mechanism where the whole army would follow. And so it meant to move in disarray. It came to mean a soldier who abandoned his post. And so also the word was sometimes used in ancient literature to describe 
a kid who was truant. When I was growing up, we would use the term ditch. We would say, hey, dude, did you ditch school today? Now, of course, none of you did that, so I'm sure it's not going to relate to any of you. It meant that you weren't where you were supposed to be. And so the idea is the person who has either neglected or abandoned their God-given responsibilities. And this is interesting in light of the return of Jesus Christ, because what Paul is in effect saying is that we have a role. We've been assigned a task and Jesus is the general. If you're a believer, you belong. Believers belong in the body of Christ. You have a job. You have responsibilities. And so that's the idea. You belong in the ranks of the church with the people of God under the leadership of Jesus in fellowship with one another, ministering, serving, helping to reach the lost, providing for the poor, providing for the needy. Your life and the gifts and the callings that God has placed in your life was never meant to be for yourself and by yourself. Most of you intuitively know that what I'm saying is true. There is a knock inside of your heart where you hear and you respond and you say, that's exactly right. And so some of you may have been having a flirtation with the world. What are you doing out there and why are you there? One Bible translator went so far as to write, Keep a check on the loafers. That's the way he translated it. As laziness or inactivity brought you to a place where you need to be cautioned. Or you need to be warned. Do you find yourself on thin ice? Why would you damage your soul or why would you damage your testimony? You see, we all make mistakes. There are two kinds of mistakes that we make. Those that we can recover from. And those that we can never recover from. The Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, hundreds of years ago, he said, quote, You have been once warned today, while the door of the ark yet stands open, you have, as it were, once again heard the knocks of the hammer and the axe on the building of the ark to put you in mind that a flood is approaching. Take heed, therefore, that you do not stop your ears. Treat these warnings with a regardless heart and neglect the great work which you have to do, lest the flood of wrath suddenly comes upon you and sweeps you away, and there is no remedy. I could have been a preacher like 200 years ago. He gives this visual. You hear the men sawing and working on the ark and the noises of the activity is to remind you that the flood is coming and that judgment is coming. That's the warning. And you get two kinds of warnings. 
those that you respond to and those that you refuse to respond to. You see, if you're a smart person and you see the sign warning you to slow down, that's exactly what you will do. If you hear the warning that if ever there was a time for you to have a right relationship with God, if ever there was a time for you to be in fellowship with God, if ever there was a time for you to be serving God, now is the time. Now is not the time for laziness and now is not the time for selfishness and now is not the time where you're on your own and you're doing whatever it is that you want to do. And so in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, Paul will say, reject a divisive man after the first and the second admonition. And so when somebody comes to you and says, why, why aren't you in fellowship? What's happened to you? Where have you been? Why aren't you here? But in the disciplines of body life, there is not one size fits all. And so he says in verse 14, warn those who are unruly. But look what it says. Comfort the faint hearted. The word faint hearted is very, very interesting. Oligo, psychos. It's two words. Oligos, which was little and suke, which was soul, in, in, in the ancient world, it was a person, the, the image in the word itself is a person with a shriveled soul. Have you ever seen a craisin? It's a cranberry with all the juice sucked out. Have you ever seen a raisin? I know some of you go, no, only in my oatmeal. It's a grape with all the juice sucked out. The picture here of the faint hearted are the people who are walking around with the weight of the world. These are the people who are constantly preoccupied with life's problems and life's pain. And they are mentally and emotionally and physically shriveled, drained by Fear and by worry. Are you timid? Are you reserved? Are you easily discouraged? Are you easily disappointed? Are you the person who hesitates to serve? Are you the person who hesitates to witness? Are you the person who's constantly preoccupied with what other people are saying and with what other people are doing? Rebuke is not the right response. Paul says, comfort the faint-hearted. You know what comfort does to the faint-hearted? It's like when you put water in instant potatoes. It rehydrates. Comfort becomes almost a kind of a liquid bath where the reality is, is begin to, to, to pour on you. Rebuke is not the right response in this particular circumstance, but rather it's the giving of comfort. So if you know someone who is faint hearted, you know what you should do? Give them the priceless gift of comfort. Grace 
and grit are needed to walk out of life's shadows. Some people are consumed by grief and some people are consumed by guilt. And when you are consumed by grief and when you are consumed by guilt, often you don't provide a place for grace or comfort. And so a person comes along with a great big picture of comfort and they begin to pour it on top of you. And comfort, by the way, is never a substitute for, for, for obedience. In other words, God promised to bless Abraham and make him great, but there was a condition. Remember, Abraham had to obey God. Remember, the Bible says that Abraham was told to leave his home and leave his family and leave his friends and embark on a new adventure and go to a, a new land. He was going to make Abraham and his, his children great in the Lord, and he was going to make them a great nation. And so in order for Abram to do exactly what God needed him to do, he needed to get up and he needed to go in a different direction. I'm not talking about the comfort that gives that, that, that gives you the strength to continue in a place of uselessness. I'm talking about the comfort that gives strength to face trial and to face difficulty and to provide Provide encouragement and to provide assurance in trial and in difficulty. It's been my experience that the greatest source of comfort are the promises of God. Hurt, empty, guess what? You need to know about the promises of God. And you'll note that in order to heed the warnings of God, it requires that you're connected with the word of God. And in order to provide the promises of God in the Bible, you still have to be connected to the Bible. And so he says, warn the unruly, comfort the faint hearted. And look at the end. He says, uphold or support the weak. Do you know who the weak are? The weak are those who are exhausted. They're too tired to stand. They don't have the resources or the strength to handle life's daily load. The weak cave in easily to temptation or they become discouraged or defeated or they're easily led astray. The Bible says that they need to be supported. Or upheld. And again, it's another beautiful word in the original language. On, fey, ke, fey. It was a word that meant to cling on to or to hold on to. The picture in the ancient world is that you're face to face with a person who's about to collapse and you grab them with your arms and you hold them tight. I think what Paul is basically saying in that particular passage is very much the, the words of the popular song. You've all heard it. Lean on me when you're not strong. Lean on me and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. The idea is more than just leaning. The idea is that sometimes you have to embrace in such a way because there's no other way. 
Imagine a person who's paralyzed from the neck down. You have to grab them. And you have to carry them. That's the idea. And it's interesting that Paul told the Romans to receive the weak in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. He said, receive the weak. He didn't say reject the weak. As a matter of fact, in Romans, it says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities. It means weakness of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's what it says in the very next chapter of Romans chapter 15, verse 1. So then we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, it says, To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I have been made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. The weak may refer to those who are morally or spiritually hypersensitive. You know, the church will often elevate the strong. But they find no place for the weak. But you have to understand something. That the strong will often become weak. And the weak will often become strong. You know, in a moment of great difficulty, David had Jonathan to lean on. Elijah had Elisha. Paul had Epaphrodites and Epaphras and Luke and Onesiphorus. And, and there are going to be names that you don't know and let alone you don't want to try and spell them. You may not know those names. But Paul said of Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16. He often refreshed me. And he was not ashamed of my chains. It was Paul's way of saying, I was in jail. And I was bound. And you know, there's, there's something humiliating and discomforting and even disconnecting when uh, you're supposed to be this great apostle and you find yourself in jail. But remember, he's in jail for all of the right reasons. And in his weakness... Someone comes and provides for him. You know, we sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that we're the strong. We sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that we are the ones who others look to for help and support. And we forget that even the Lord Jesus called on the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for him and they fell asleep. But then Jesus died. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples all got together in the upper room and they began to pray and they began to pray collectively. And as they prayed collectively, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they experienced life giving strength and life giving power. And Paul reminds each and every group, he says, be patient with all. 
The Apostle Paul tacks on patience as a quality to be exercised by everyone. And, you know, there's interesting. It's interesting to me. The word patience in this particular instance is macro thumeo, which literally means to be long tempered or or long fused. There are there. There's another Greek word for patience, by the way. There's two Greek words for patience. And it took me the longest time to figure out why is Paul using the word Hupamone in one instance and macrothumeo in another instance. And it all of a sudden occurred to me that Hupamone had to do with patience in circumstance. In other words, Hupamone was was around the life that you live and the circumstances that you face. Hupamone is when you're stuck in traffic. And you're looking around going. I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. Hoopamonia is when the computer refuses to link up to your Wi-Fi carrier and you're going, I can't get on the I can't go online. I grew up in a world where I never got impatient over the fact that I couldn't go online. And now all of a sudden there isn't online. Those people tricked me into relying on them for stuff that I have to do. That's hupomone patience, but patience here, macrothumeo, is a different kind of patience. It's a patience with people. That's what Paul's talking about. Let me ask you kind of a hard question. Are you more likely to be patient with circumstances or more likely to be patient with people? Or are you more likely to be impatient in circumstances and impatient with people? Here... Paul is speaking of patience with people. Macrothumeo means long-tempered. We, in our culture and society, would use the term long-fuse. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a short fuse or do you have a long-fuse? Are you more likely to blow up and become impatient or restless Paul is basically saying, have a really long fuse with people. We're to be calm. We're to be long-suffering. We give ourselves and to those who are in the body of Christ, to those who are in the family of God. And here's the idea. Even though this may come as a shock to you. You know, when you're a parent, sometimes you're a little bit quick-tempered with your children. I need you to grow up, and I need you to grow up now. When you're a grandpa, everything is different. When you're a grandpa, you don't go, I need you to grow up, and I need you to grow up now. You don't go, no, stay young. It's okay. You're fine right where you are. I'm so totally comfort with you growing at the pace that God has set aside for people to grow. People all the time ask me, how are you so patient with those people on the radio? What's my, what's my other option? To blow up? That's not fun to listen to. And so Paul 
basically says we're to remain calm. We're to remain long-suffering. Paul is asking that we be very, very patient with each other. Let me ask you kind of another hard question. Have you wounded someone with an outburst of anger or impatience? Did you refuse to be patient? And it's created a wound, a hard wound, a difficult wound. If so, what do you suppose you need to do to remedy the conflict and soothe the wounds? In James chapter 1, verse 4, it says, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here is the idea in James. Patience isn't simply for your brother's sake. Patience is for your sake. It's so that you'll change. It's so that you'll grow. It has a direct benefit to you. And now Paul basically says, I need you to watch your motives in verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both yourself and for all. And it's interesting that he should even have to say this. The very fact that it's here, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. The implication is that there were people in the church who were doing exactly that. And it ought not to be. In the Roman world, it was a world of retaliation. For the Roman, it wasn't an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or a hand for a hand or a life for a life. In the Roman world, you knock out my tooth and I knock out all of your teeth. You kill someone in my family. And I kill everyone in your family. In Rome, you destroy a Roman village and the whole country is razed to the ground. And here's the idea. Paul insists. He says, you're a Christian. This is not the way Christians respond. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. And you have to understand what a radical, radical statement he's making. He is talking about a change of behavior that would have been dramatic. He says there's no place for retaliation. There's no place for revenge. Paul understands that human beings will do evil. But we're not to reciprocate evil for evil. If you or I mistreat the unbeliever, guess what we've done? We forfeited our right our privilege to point them to Jesus and our testimony is ruined. When you return evil for evil, what you do effectively is place yourself out of circumstances where you can be used by God in order to affect a change. And guess what? When you repay evil for evil, you also run the risk that you're not going to be able to effectively warn And you're certainly not going to be able to effectively comfort. And you're certainly not going to be able to effectively support. In Proverbs 24, 29, it says, say not, 
I will do so to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. The book of Proverbs says, don't say that. Make sure that this isn't a word or an expression in your vocabulary. You can't say, well, I guess I'm going to give you a dose of your own medicine. See, you're laughing because you're going, well, wait a minute. I, I found myself saying that. Hey, let's see how he or she responds. Let, let's see if what will happen when they get a little dose of their own medicine. You want to treat me bad? Then I'm going to treat you bad. No. Let's do a little exercise. And you can insert your own name. Here we go. Where it says, see that, and see the word no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Where it says, see that no one, that's where you insert your name. So, for me, it's see that Gino does not render evil for evil. And you see to the other, to anyone, insert the name of the person that you're having the most problems with. See that Gino doesn't render evil for evil to... No, I'm not going to... Don't worry, your name's not going in there. Here's the idea. This is one of those verses where it's very easy to look at, but it's not so easy to do. Harsh word for harsh word? Threatening word for threatening word? No. And you might think, well, this is hard. I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that anyone can do this. But I want you to imagine just for a moment if everyone did this. If everyone did this, what would happen in your family? If everyone did this, what would happen in your church? If everyone did this, what would happen in government? Yeah, the deep divides would begin to disappear. And you might say, well, no one can do this. But I want to remind you that this is exactly, this is exactly, this is exactly what Jesus did. When did Jesus ever render evil for evil to anyone? Look what it says, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. That single sentence, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all, becomes, I think, one of the best definitions that I've ever heard for agape love, for God's love. You might ask and answer the question, well, what does it mean to love? This is love. Always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, Surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness doesn't create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation doesn't make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they'll have time to take cover before you turn on the light. 
Remember that the next time your wife says to you. Or the next time your husband says to you, next time your husband or your wife says to you, you made me do that. You can just go rats in the cellar. The rats are in the cellar. She just turned on the light. He just turned on the light. <laughs> We're to be peacemakers, not peace fakers. <laughs> and then it says, be thankful for one another. Paul gives a checklist of things that are continually appropriate. And we say continually appropriate because Paul uses language in verses 16 and 17 and 18 like always, without ceasing, and everything. As a matter of fact, this particular portion of the scripture has been called the standing orders of the church. Remember what it says in verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And by the way, where it says rejoice, pray, give thanks, these are all in the imperative. The reason why this becomes important to you is this isn't a suggestion. It isn't even an invitation to get in touch with your feelings. It's a command. This is something that you hear and that you Obey. So in verse 16, where it says rejoice always. In Philippians 4, 4, it says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The idea is that it's joy that takes the burden out of service. And when Paul lists the fruit of the spirit or the characteristics of the spirit in Galatians 5, 22, he, sp he speaks of the fact that the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and long suffering and that these aren't things that you generate by feeling good about yourself or others, but rather this is something that is born out of a heart that is connected to Christ and to and that's connected to God. The basis of joy is Jesus himself. Yogi Berra once said. You can observe a lot by just watching. Yeah, we laugh because it's so silly. You can observe a lot by just watching. Yes, that's a pretty self-evident thing. But Yogi Berra was way more right than I think any of us ever understood. Because you can rejoice always just by rejoicing always. Remember, if Jesus is the basis of joy, then joy is different from happiness. Joy isn't being elated over everything that is happening externally. It isn't an attachment to the circumstance, but rather it's an attachment that is internal based on the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. Joy is not happiness and happiness is not joy. Happiness is external. Joy is internal. Happiness is based on the circumstances. Joy is based on exactly who Jesus is in everything that Jesus is. 
And so he says, rejoice always. And then he says, pray always, pray without ceasing. Paul moves from family partnership and now he moves into the area of family worship. And in the next few verses, he will write about the elements of prayer in verse 17 and and praise in verse 18. The word of God in verses 19 through 21. Paul told the Romans, be faithful in prayer in Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Paul told the Colossians, Epaphras, one who is one of you and a servant of Jesus sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may take a firm stand in all of the will of God, mature and fully assured, it says in Colossians 4.12. Paul told Timothy, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Prayer, by the way, is is a mechanism that's been ordained by God for human beings to receive things from God. Prayer is simply the request for things from God, but it's even more than that. It's the mechanism of friendship and fellowship and relationship. Prayer is the admission that you can't do it and God can. Now, I want you to understand something. Paul is building on something. He begins with joy and the joy leads to prayer. Someone once said, I often say my prayers, but do I ever pray? And do the wishes of my heart go with the words I say? I might as well kneel down and worship gods of stone as to offer to the living God a prayer of words alone. Prayer isn't just simply opening and closing your mouth. I think praying without ceasing isn't just simply mouthing words. It's a reminder that prayer is something else. Prayer, in part, is faith in God, not just simply words to God. J.B. Lightfoot put it this way. It is not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer consists. I think that this is what he's saying. Praying without ceasing, I'm going to suggest to you, is living in the conscious knowledge that God is present, that Jesus Christ is present. Let me try and give you an analogy. Imagine you're married. I know for some of you that that's not difficult. I am married. When you don't think about your husband or your wife, are you still married? Yeah. The analogy of love becomes, I think, a perfect analogy. The analogy of love is you are aware of the other person. You are aware of your friendship and your fellowship and your relationship with the other person. You are aware. And as you begin to think and act and respond, you are aware that your thinking and your actions and your response is always in light of the person that you're married to. And this is what I think Paul means when he says pray, pray without ceasing, because guess what? Your mind is very active. You know, you might have been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, but hey, guess what? God made your brain to be constantly thinking about things. And I think that that's part of the point. It is a joy 
that causes you to constantly think about things that you are aware of the presence of God and you are aware of your friendship and fellowship and relationship with Jesus, which causes you to make decisions based on those things. And in verse 18, he says, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, think about this. Joy and prayer begin to build on one another and with joy and prayer comes gratitude in everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God. Prayer and praise go together. Prayer and praise leads to thanks. How do you give thanks? Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Is that, did I hear that? Yeah, I can hear it. I can hear the silent question coming from your heart. How, how in the world can I give thanks in all things? How can I give thanks for the earthquake in Haiti? How can I give thanks for the death of a child? How can I give thanks for terrible accidents? How can I give thanks for death and sin? No, I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about. We're not giving thanks for the earthquake or the death or the accident. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. We thank God for his presence and his power as we walk through the earthquake, as we deal with the death, as we face the terrible trial. In Christ Jesus, there's triumph and victory. Therefore, I think it says. Therefore, in everything, not for everything, we walk through it all. We know that Jesus is the Lord. We know that we're more than conquerors in Jesus. I heard about a pastor who had a huge ministry and he he built this upper room in the back of his office and he had a fireman's pole and he climbed up the pole and he says, I'm going to stay in this office until I know what the will of God is. And then someone sent him rejoice always pray without ceasing and everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to build an ivory tower and you don't have to make a run for it. This is what God wants for you. He wants joy in your heart. Pray to the Lord. An attitude of thanksgiving. That's the idea. The Christian life is a life of joy. It's a life of prayer. It's a life of thanksgiving. And think about this. That's what God intends for each and every believer. And since that is what God intends for each and every believer, that becomes the basis of establishing disciplines in the church. The last resource might surprise you. We have three resources. We have three resources. We have God's word. Where we have all the truth we need. To function as believers in Christ towards one another. Second, we have God's Holy Spirit. You know what that means? In the Bible, we have all the truth that we could ever need. In the Holy Spirit, we have all the power that we could ever need. We can rely on the Holy Spirit's power for strength to forgive, the power to be patient, the strength to provide comfort and assistance and warning and encouragement. 
But we don't just have God's word. We do have that. We don't just have God's Holy Spirit. We also have that. The last resource that we have (laughs) is each other. That might come as a shock to you. In the body of Christ, in the family of God, we have those who will warn the unruly, and we have those who are the unruly. We have those who comfort the faint-hearted, and those who are the faint-hearted. We have those who are weak, and we have those who will support the weak. But guess what? The truth is that the men and the women in the church have been placed there for your maturation, for your growth. I want you to think for just a moment of the friends that you have who have left the fellowship and who have left God's path and who have wandered in the ways of the world. They don't go to church anymore. They don't discuss Jesus anymore. They don't talk about his love anymore and they don't talk about the truth anymore. Do you warn them? Or do you comfort them? The answer might surprise you. You'll never know until you talk to them. You know, some may be dealing with deep sorrow. Some may be dealing with personal despair. Some may be dealing with dark disappointment. And in that sorrow and in that despair and in that disappointment, they've refused to work or they've neglected their home or they've neglected their marriage or they've neglected their family. You might not feel competent or qualified to warn them or to comfort them. Or to support them. But make no mistake about it. That's exactly what God has asked you to do. We have the word of God for truth. And we have the spirit of God for power. And we have each other. (laughs) So that we can grow. You know, in Spain, the matador faces the bull with only a red cape and a long sword. Some of you have seen it. When the bull comes charging to the matador, he has a cape and he has a sword and it takes all of the powers of thought and all of the powers of concentration to move at exactly the right moment. And if the matador does not move at exactly the right moment, guess what could happen? You can be injured for life or you can be killed forever. As a matter of fact, one tiny mistake... One lapse in judgment and your career is over. One of Spain's most successful matadors was a guy named El Cordobes. And he was once asked on Spanish TV, El Cordobes, where does a matador go in order to find courage? And the matador said, The University for Courage? 
is to do what you believe in. And I thought about that. I thought about that. What does the matador believe in? The matador believes in his strength and his training in order to face trial under difficult circumstances. But it made me ask another question. And the other question is, Christian, what do you believe in? What is it that you believe in? Do you believe in God's word and do you believe in God's spirit and do you believe that God has placed the people in your life so that you can become the man of God or the woman of God, the child of God who reflects the character of Christ? What is it that you really believe? Because if you really don't believe that the Bible is true, and if you don't believe that the Spirit of God is present, and you don't believe that the person sitting next to you or in back of you or in front of you was placed there for any reason other than the reason that we can provide mutual edification, then you're missing something very, very important that the text is trying to tell you. The Bible gives us disciplines so that we can live as godly men. And the Bible gives us disciplines so that we can live as godly women. But the Bible also gives us disciplines so that we can live as a family and grow as a family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, Lord, we know that these are commands to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks. This isn't an option. This isn't a suggestion. But it will be impossible for us to experience joy. Or to have an attitude of prayer. Or deep sense of gratitude. Unless we're rightfully and rightly connected with the Lord God. Unless we're rightly connected with the promises of God. Unless we're rightly connected with the Spirit of God. Unless we're rightly connected with each other. And so again, Lord, I pray that we would grow up at exactly the right time and fulfill the ministry that you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.